Jordan Kerner is a widely acclaimed film and television producer. He is president and founder of the Kerner Entertainment Company, which is committed to high-quality, value-oriented, provocative entertainment. Most recently, Kerner worked on the film adaptation of Clifford the Big Red Dog. His previous films include The Smurfs, Charlotte's Web, The Mighty Ducks, Fried Green Tomatoes, and When a Man Loves a Woman. Kerner is also a dedicated custodian of his community. He is involved with such organizations as Planned Parenthood, River LA, and the Starbright Foundation. And now, Mia Funk's interview with Jordan Kerner. Jordan Kerner, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you very much, Mia. I appreciate it. This is an education initiative and students are so fascinated. They, they love film and television, of course, and what they see, um, they're very drawn to it. But the role of a producer um, is still so mysterious as like casting directors, whatever, all this stuff that goes into making film or television. When you went into it, what, what do you feel are some uh, misconceptions or things that people don't realize about the roles and responsibilities of the producer? I think the most common assumption that people make are that producers finance movies mm -hmm. rather than have a very large creative uh, portion of the process itself. Mm -hmm. um, I've never personally financed a movie. I've made one independent film, but all the rest have been made for studios. Mm -hmm. um, and they finance the movie. And with the, when we did our one independent film, um, we had the help of others to put the financing together. That film was a film a number of years ago called Fry Green Tomatoes. Oh, yes. Well, that's a classic, right? Well, that's very kind of you. Um, it was a journey of both love and a great amount of difficulty of putting all the money together. We were turned down by every head of every studio at least twice. Wow. Uh, so, yes, it, that is not for me... Um, the financing is not the primary function of the producer. But as we go along, I think that, that um, your students will be able to understand that from my point of view, the primary function of the producer is to have an overall creative picture of what this film, its, its marketing, its distribution, the screenplay, the casting, all of that is about. Yeah, and it's so interesting because I guess then you know, obviously the actors are who people see, I mean, the visual aspects of the film, and then I guess a director is the name, that they, but all these other creatives that whereas you as a producer may be attached to the film way in advance of the director or any of those things that people see on their screen. Well, the beginning process for me of any film that I produce um, and has been over the years of some 40, 45 films and television projects, uh, it usually either is an original idea, mm -hmm. it is a book that I've read, um, it is a screenplay that's been submitted to me um, through an agent, um, or it is uh, a book review, any of those things are where most of the movies uh, that I have produced over the years have come to me. So it's really about the idea. And um, it's about the book itself, the, the article in the magazine or newspaper, where I see that we can tell something important about the human condition. And for me, it's always about what is the narrative momentum of the picture? What, how does a picture pull us through the story and why are we involved in the characters and why are we involved in the story? So those are the places that I start. The most, for me, one of the most fulfilling parts of the creative process is the development of the idea, the book, the article, whatever it is, into a screenplay. And for me, the people I often respect, really more than anyone, are the writers who start with a blank page. I mean, we may give them two to five pages of an idea, but they really start with a blank page um, in creating it. So I think there's a little bit of a miracle every time that works. Um, and I find it um, to be the first and extremely um, satisfying part of the process. 
But it's interesting because the, that seems like another aspect of producing that um, those outside of the film world are not realizing there's an element of writing or there's definitely an element of communication, would you say, in all those conversations and generating the excitement. Yes, absolutely. And um, from as long as I can remember, I have always, one of the things I demand in a budget when we're mm -hmm. going to make the film is to house the writers, feed them, give them the per diem. And we make what we call an all services deal with the writers who are paid to write a screenplay, who are paid to write each draft um, as we go through. But once we're finally green lit and we're moving forward, um, I want the writers on the set every day. Um, if, you know, if they have the time to do that, they're paid um, as an all services deal. They're not exclusive, so they can go home at any time they want and work on another project. But I'm hopeful that they'll stay there with us. And if they're writing right in their hotel rooms at night, um, on something else, but during the day, be with us to work with the director, myself, and the actors uh, to make sure that we have the very best expression of what ultimately we see as uh, the right movie to, to make. So you work, you work on projects, you mentioned something like, like a nine years or 10 years sometimes when you, um, from beginning to end. Yeah, so speak about some of those longer term projects, you know, and how do you maintain the enthusiasm? You, you know, how, you know, you must be in love with the stories. Well, yes, I, I'm always in love with some aspect of the story, if not all of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it sits on our developer, the development report, and it's something that I know um, someday is going to get made. For me, the Smurfs was something that I started trying to get the rights to it by writing uh, Belgium um, to the Colorford family. Uh, Peo was the father and the creator, um, and Veronique Colorford is the, his daughter, who was the model for Smurfette, and also runs the entire business. And we had sent letters um, saying that we were very interested, probably as early as the late 80s, um, early 90s, right after the, Smurf, the Smurfs had gone off the air as a cartoon, um, we were interested in a theatrical film. And I never heard back from them. And in fact, I didn't, I kept writing maybe once a year, once every two years. And um, the time I heard back was around 2002. Um, so it was 12 years that I'd been just pursuing it. Yeah. Um, we then worked with them, we developed a treatment, um, we had a writer, um, we developed an idea at Paramount for an animated film, and that was in 2002, 2004, and then the administration of Paramount changed. And what was loved and thought to be a big hit in one administration becomes, oh, that was their project, it's not our project. And so it sits for a while. And in that case, actually, our savior um, was a movie called The Chipmunks, because yeah. The Chipmunks came out and was extremely successful. And every studio in town called me, the studio heads, uh, the, the next Monday morning and said, do you still have the rights to the Smurfs? Mm -hmm. And um, we, we finally and ultimately made a decision to go to Sony. Michael Linton, who was then the chairman, um, grew up in Belgium, excuse me, grew up in the Netherlands, and the Smurfs was his whole childhood. Mm. So I knew he had the same level of passion for them that I did. And um, so that's where we began that process. But we didn't really begin shooting that movie until 2009 mm. at Sony. Um, so if you think about the amount of time from when we first wrote the letter with a treatment that we had written, um, which was back in the late 90s. Um, um, uh, no, sorry, the mid 90s um, to uh, 2009. It was well over a decade. And yeah, so when something begins and, um, and something is which is so beloved and, uh, and then you're negotiating across countries and you're, um, you're, you're uh, um, checking the waters in terms of interest with because it's intergenerational then by now maybe those who grew up with it maybe they'll bring their children or whatever so yeah so what are some of those things that you would have to make sure that you included or updated you know for a, you know a new generation 
I think like any family film, and I've produced probably in the theatrical world, um, a large majority of the live action hybrid films. Mm -hmm. And um, those have been of great interest to me well before I had my own family. Mm -hmm. um, I always loved them as a kid and felt that they had important things to say. So the Smurfs um, or any of the others, whether it was Charlotte's Web or the Mighty Ducks or Three Musketeers or any of those movies over the years, for me always had to be grounded in a message that would be relevant to the world as I saw it at that point in time. And that was something as I began to be interested, I didn't know in my lifetime whether I would, I would work in the entertainment business or whether I would live in the political world. Um, both those things were interesting to me when I was a, a student and later in college and a graduate student. And I was a very political person, so I felt that there were things to explore in the human world um, as well sometimes as nature um, that were very relevant to the, the few years in time when we were making that film. And hopefully, if we did it right, they were relevant for all time in that. Um, but it always, I always had to look very carefully at what it is um, that could be uh, the heart and soul of the movie that ultimately I know that in a very gentle way, no polemics, no specific storylines, but in the DNA of the movie itself would come a political thought that we could put out um, to the audience. Um, whether it's about friendship or embracing each other, whether it's about it takes a village with the Smurfs, whether we have a movie in post-production right now, Clifford the Big Red Dog. And yeah. with Clifford, is Clifford um, a freak? Is he, um, in, in this country or in lots of countries around the world, is he an immigrant from somewhere else? Or is he a miracle? And should we treat one different than the other? Um, aren't all humans miracles, you know, in that way? So I'm always looking. George of the Jungle, we dealt with the changes in the jungle and the environment and medicine and the Amazon. You know, we always had things that sort of found their way through the stories um, that could help lift um, a population of, of young people or even older, whether it was fried green tomatoes or whether it's the Mighty Ducks, and it's about having a team of every single race, every single economic background, male and female, unlike any team that had ever played, but we never said it. It was never one thing we said. It wasn't political in that way. But what was political was that they were all there together, and they loved each other as a family. And in the end, because of the strength of that love, they prevailed. So those are the ways that I like to look at a film from the first moment in time. What's the, what lives underneath the story and, and what's important right now for us to say. And so those feelings over those movies in the moment in, in, um, Clipper, in Charlotte's Web, where Charlotte's dying, um, but she's talking to Wilbur about the innocence of what Wilbur had to say to her and why Wilbur loved her, um, because he was innocent and he didn't have any of the background of prejudice and anger that all the other members of the barn had. What people don't often know is that E.B. White, the writer of Charlotte's Web, was writing about the formation of the United Nations and the rejection of Arabs and Jews in the formation of Israel and the Middle East, where everyone in Europe had a prejudice and around the world had a prejudice against both groups. And um, the spider represents th that thing in all of us that we're afraid of, even though in fact, they may simply be a wonderful creature and we don't see them, but Wilbur did. And in the dying, Charlotte thanks Wilbur for seeing her as a being who loved and a being who cared and not brought to that all of the presuppositions and prejudices of the other barn animals' parents 
as they learned as little creatures to form their own prejudices. Um, and in that scene, that scene is always very important for me um, to hear Julia Roberts, who voices Charlotte incredibly, um, to hear what that means in terms of the nature of prejudice, which is what E.B. White wanted us to feel. <coughs> I, would, I would add to that that when I read the last review of Charlotte's Web of our movie, mm. all the reviews came out in the second week of December and the first week of December in 2006. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, we were fortunate to have wonderful reviews, New York Times and all that. But what mattered was two months, two and a half months later, in the middle of February, I saw a review come from the studio to me, and they always put a little kit together of the reviews. And there was one new one. It was like, I've never had a review come in two and a half months later. And I want to tell this story because it was so important to hear as a filmmaker. Um, I read it and the title of it was Worth the Wait. So I thought, okay, maybe we've done something right, but I'm really anxious to hear. And um, as I read it and the reviewer asked questions like, how did the filmmakers know that I, excuse me, how did the filmmakers know that there was this in this bedroom or that in that bedroom or this in the living room or these things in the barn? How did they know that? And clearly, you know, they did their homework, which I had spent two weeks at Cornell University with white gloves on going through the archives of E.B. White before I even hired a writer mm -hmm. to know everything he thought about the creation of his masterwork. And then the writer kept going and talking about um, E.B. White, who sat with her, and he was her grandfather. At, at the movie that came out in the 1970s, the animated movie, where Wilbur the pig came out and broke into song and said, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live. And apparently Mr. White turned to his granddaughter and took the motion of a sword pulled into his chest or his stomach and said, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. And she was about 12 at that point. And he told her afterwards that Hollywood clearly didn't understand the rhythms of nature. And that someday, when that happened, <clears throat> I'm going to get emotional right now, someday when that happened, um, that the world would understand that it was worth the wait. And she said, today, after I saw the film, today was the day that I realized that Hollywood finally understood the rhythms of nature. And yes, it was worth the wait. And it was uh, Catherine White, um, granddaughter who wrote it. And I didn't stop crying for a half hour because um, I had read everything. I knew what was important to him. And we used a lot of his own dialogue in the movie. Um, but I knew what he wanted at heart and I knew what he wanted politically. Um, and so I was never going to let the politics slip out of the movie um, that he was telling as a writer for The New Yorker. And um, it was a great privilege um, to be able to do that. And I wanted just to mention that as one of the few, um, much later after the release of a film, one of the few great moments of uh, kindness and sort of tearful in in introspection that can happen. Hi, I'm Emma Ryan, producer of this episode. I was excited to work on this episode because I want to work in the film and television industry. I'm happy to say that I learned much more than I was expecting to from Mia's conversation with Jordan. Until now, I've always had a pretty cynical view of producers. The producer, in my mind, was the person on set whose job it was to tell the creative types no. Even in the Mel Brooks musical, The Producers, they are portrayed as greedy and underhanded. But my impression could not have been more wrong. Jordan Kerner has taught me that a producer is one of many artists on set. 
His role involves stepping into the bureaucratic circus ring more than others, but in doing so, he's helping to unify the artistic vision of everyone involved with the project. He is a central part of each stage, from pre-production to post-production, a process that can last years for any given film. Jordan is just as passionate about his job as anyone else in the industry, as he very well should be. He is dutiful and considerate in his work. Whether it's a gritty drama about the LA drug scene or a family-friendly hybrid animation, he is careful to curate a profound message with each film. Audiences are deeply moved by his work, as illustrated by the E.B. White story you just heard. I myself have been deeply moved by his work, without ever even knowing his name. I saw Fried Green Tomatoes when I was very young, and as a lesbian, it was a very important film to me. Jordan Kerner has made me excited to enter the film and television industry in more ways than one. After the recording ended, Jordan told me about how during the production of The Smurfs 2, they digitally mapped much of Notre Dame Cathedral in order to render it later for the film. After the cathedral sustained extensive fire damage in 2019, Jordan was approached by French officials. Apparently, the digital mapping data they procured during production was very useful for the Notre Dame reconstruction efforts. I am about to graduate college with a degree in architecture, so I was thrilled to learn about this overlap between the industry I've spent the last four years studying and the industry I hope to break into. Well, that's really beautiful and it's really the importance of film and television, the art storytelling generally is that um, particularly those stories or films that we encounter at a young age, the profound impact they have and how they imprint upon it under our values and um, subtly, as you say, but really movingly. Like children really, they, you know, they go right into it. They believe it. What early um, film memories really impacted you and got your imagination going um probably as a young young child very young was bambi um oh, yeah and it was the presence of man mm. and i man in those days being all humans mm. um but let me say it today in the presence yeah. of, of men and women who hunt and yeah. um who um in that case um, in Bambi, um, we see the mother die in the fire and the father is being hunted and he's trying to explain to his son how to stay safe. Um, I was deeply affected um, by both how nature took its toll and how human beings took a toll on the animal community um, in that. And um, it didn't make me a vegetarian. Um, I began to understand that those who hunted to, to eat and survive, that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. And those who hunted for sport, I don't know. That wasn't part of, of what I wanted to be when I grew up. I didn't make the movie, but I was deeply affected by it. Um, later, probably, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I love the story of, of um, the importance of economic equality. Um, I love the story of the love within that family. Um, and I love the element of miracle um, that was in that story. And um, so it has, uh, what, what underlied that film, It's a Wonderful Life, and a lot of films that Jimmy Stewart starred in and Frank Capra made um, were things that were guideposts for me as a filmmaker in training um, before I started actually producing. Um, they, were, they were guideposts to what I should be looking for in the films that we would make and produce. Right. And love, uh, yeah, to go back to fried uh, green uh, to tomatoes, yeah, this, this message of love and what is friendship and, you know, there are larger families, what we'll do for them and sacrifices um, is also in underpinning that film. How, what were, were the origins of, of that? Because was that your first film or one no. of your first? One of your, I don't know, because it all get mixed up in the chronology of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, 
it was probably in with motion pictures and television, our fifth or sixth film, I forget. All right. um, but our first film was Less Than Zero. Oh, yes. Uh, and um, in Fried Green Tomatoes, um, it, it it's a, holds a very special place in my heart because my partner, who was my good friend, and I worked with him um, uh, on a television series before that, um, and helped him to realize his dream of directing mm -hmm. in that. And he's a brilliant director, um, is John Abnett. And um, John and I were friends and then later became partners um, in our company, Abnett Kerner, and um, worked together. And John said um, at the very beginning of that, if you join me as a partner, I'll train you to be a producer because you know how to develop but to actually produce a movie, I'll train you. But at some point in time, after you've produced a few of your own, mm -hmm. I need you to let me have a year off to develop a movie that I want to direct. Mm -hmm. And I said, great. Well, Fried Green Tomatoes was that movie. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget speaking to him. He was in the South of France, um, uh, the Hotel du Cap, taking a I vacation, yeah. reading a manuscript. And I was in Hawaii um, reading the same manuscript. And that was the manuscript from Franny Flagg of Fried Green Tomatoes, obviously before it was published and all of that. Oh, even and before it was published? Yeah. Wow. We read it, um, we loved it, and we pursued it. And we pursued it for John to direct. It was the only way we would move forward. Mm -hmm. And John prepared the screenplay with Fanny. Um, he wrote a lot, she wrote a lot um, in that, and um, that was our film. Um, it was a great experience. Um, it was a movie about, as you said already, love and friendship, but it was also a movie about ageism. It was also a movie about sexual preference. Yeah. It was also a movie about race. And at that moment in time, in the late 80s, early 90s, that was very important. Those were issues that were emerging, especially the sexual preference issue. Race had already um, you know, uh, uh, been a topic that we had explored and felt that it always needed to be explored um, in ways because it changed as uh, racism changes, you know, as our society progresses, in quotes. Mm -hmm. um, and um, ageism was something that was also becoming um, something that was being discussed more where the youth culture was worshipped and those with experience and age not so much. And we were in our 30s at that point. And um, so that was a very important element for us in the film. Um, so the relationship between Mary Stuart Masterson and Mary Louise Parker, um, Fanny Flagg said um, it was based on her aunt and her aunt's best friend who lived together, the two women who lived together. And that Fanny, who herself is a lesbian, um, didn't know whether her aunt and her friend were lovers or not, but she knew that they had a loving relationship. And um, so the movie was based on that loving relationship um, in terms of sexual preference. And um, of course, with the brilliant Je uh, Jessica Tandy, it, it dealt with ageism. Um, and um, it dealt with racism with Cicely Tyson and and others um, in the cast. So it was a movie that was perfect for us because it dealt with a lot of issues that we still, we felt very strongly about and wanted to get out there. And it was a very human, both funny and emotional story. So for John, he did a brilliant job directing it. Um, and for me, it was a great uh, project to be working with him on. Right. And you had, in a way, explored some of those things in from different ways. I'm just noticing, I'm just looking at the, uh, the different stories you've been drawn to over the years. And now I think it's more, you could say that that's a family film, but some of the subject matter, you have to be of a certain age to understand, you know, yeah. fully. But you could watch it on one level. Less than zero, again, that's more adult fair it's not yeah. um so what would then would uh, draw what drew you to to that and, and well think of los angeles in the 1980s overdoses were rampant um drug use was rampant cocaine and heroin and overdoses from heroin were rampant um 
and as a person who grew up in the 60s, I probably tried most things. I never used a needle for anything, but I probably tried most drugs and um, was not an addictive personality. Um, so it wasn't something that was you know, relevant to me personally or my partner, but so many friends uh, were hurt by it. Um, and so many uh, people younger than ourselves, we could see we're getting lost in it. Um, and for us, we decided, um, Scott Rudin was then the president of the studio at that point, and he asked us to come in, and they had already had an interpretation and a script of the book. Um, and a very interesting thing had happened, which is um, the world of AIDS um, started to rear its head. Nobody knew what it was. Um, so we found the convergence of two things. We found the, avert, the, in, the emergence of, of uh, this tremendous drug use, and we found the emergence of AIDS. And where the book was more about sexuality um, and um, drug use, uh, it didn't deal with AIDS because it predated it. Um, the studio was concerned that um, the leading character um, in the book, he was sleeping with his girlfriend and was sleeping with his buddy. And, um, without protected sex. And for us, um, we decided um, that we would just eliminate one part of that equation, which some people were very upset about. Um, but we couldn't, in a film, in a piece of popular entertainment, put it out there that it was okay for that to happen because nobody knew um, what it was or where, the, much like today, or where, um, uh, where a cure might come or not come or a drug that could make it easier to live with. Nobody knew any of that in 1985, 86. So for us, we dealt primarily with what was actually happening at the time of the book, which was the drug culture. Mm -hmm. And we made a choice. And our choice was to say that drugs are fantastic. Drugs are exciting. Look at all these great parties. Look at all the fun our characters are having. And really the most sympathetic character who we get to know the most, and I believe in our hearts care the most about, is the one who's using the most drugs, very intentionally. Um, and that, that character, Julian, was played by Robert Downey Jr. And what we get to watch in that movie without ever saying gut drugs could kill you or are bad, we only say they're fun and good, is the decline of that character ultimately to his death at the very end of the movie in the middle of the desert with his head falling back against the, the backside of a Corvette. And um, we had tens of thousands of letters from kids who had found rehab centers, from parents who had thanked us. It wasn't our intention to become a movement in that way, because we were, there was the, the Reagans um, uh, at that point, right, you know, right um, before us and during us saying, just say no. And we thought, well, that didn't work. So what we needed to do is just say yes, but, but watch carefully what happens. Mm -hmm. And ultimately we got to tell that story that was funny and sexy and interesting, um, but ultimately tragic um, in that. And again, so without hitting you over the head with it, um, we were able to have, uh, you know, thankfully many people in a generation um, stop um, doing that and ruining their lives. And Robert Downey Jr. at that, Robert Downey Jr. at that time, and of course, he's gone through and come out the other side, you know, wonderfully. Um, but was it going through, I think, um, at that time? As, as well during the filming or around the ends of it? Well, what, for us, we didn't know that yet about Robert Downey Jr., right? He had um, just come out of Weird Science and Saturday Night Live, mm -hmm. and um, I just thought he was amazing and one of the great sort of Charlie Chaplin-esque comedians, yeah. which he later played right. you know, to huge notoriety. Uh, he's one of, to me, one of the, he is maybe the foremost actor of his generation um, and a wonderful person. Uh -huh. um, and so that wasn't something we dealt with with him. Um, he was not, we had heard stories that that, that might have been true, but now he was not. 
Um, he, we had, he had a medical test and there was nothing in his system. So, you know, it was not something that, that we were aware of yet, although because of the world around us, we suspected that it could be true. Um, but he never, um, again, he tested negatively and he um, gave a brilliant performance every day. So none of us believed that that was the case. The pressures of fame, I can imagine. And I, I imagine with just very talented individuals the charisma is so strong that you can't it's a larger than life way of being right well he was certainly that way mm. um i just remember there's a moment in the movie where he says the words after he's jumped out of a car at a stoplight in palm springs and he's run across the street and sat down on the curb and he says does it with his voice breaking does it look like i'm ready for homework because his friend, Andrew McCarthy and Jamie Gertz, um, his friends, have, have tried to take him away from Los Angeles to get him out of that culture and take him to school to live with them mm. and trying to get him to go to college. And he says, does it look like I'm ready for homework? And the whole tragedy is expressed in that question. And um, once the director got his, I don't know, fourth or fifth take that he wanted, I just ran over to the side of the curb and sat down next to Bobby and put my arms around him. Because mm -hmm. I had tears in my eyes. He looked at me and sort of shook his head because he knows that I'm an emotional person. Um, and, but just said thank you, you know, in that. Because it was, he really found the moment of the movie um, in that he was 19 years old. Wow, um, that's, you know, yeah, he's always had a lot of maturity in his performance. Huge, huge amount of maturity. and such a, a gift um, that he had and has, and you know, it makes me so happy for him, all the success he's had. Going back to what you were discussing, which was the negotiation, the delicate, and maybe it's like a dance or something as a producer, the, these other roles that people might not realize you're involved in, um, to keep, your, keep the talent, to keep the everything, like you're the glue, maybe. I, I think, there's a lot of that. Um, first of all, because I love my directors. I don't speak directly to the actors, except maybe at dinner and stuff like that, but not about their performance, um, just as friends. The director speaks to the actors, but the director and I sit next to each other all day long, every day. I'll usually not say a thing for the first two, three takes, four takes, and then I'll start to ask if there's something I have to, as input, I'll start to ask whether you've gotten it just the way you want it. And if you haven't, let's keep going. And then when you're ready, let me know. And um, sometimes they'll say, okay, I, I feel like I'm ready. And then they'll say, I'll say to them, no, 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 all done. You already got it. Or I'll say, okay, well, have we thought about it this way? Do you think we could try it this way? Because in the editing room, I'd love to have a choice here. Okay, for you and I, then they know me at that point in time. I would never try to overrule them or go behind them. It would always be as brothers or brother and sister in that setting um, where we have each other's backs and it's just a dialogue between us about things that maybe we hadn't thought about one or the other. And it's why I think I end up working with so many directors two, three, four, five times is that we have a really good time together and become incredibly close. I look at myself as the shield to the studio for the director, so the director doesn't have to deal with that. He or she needs to be thinking about what they're thinking about and not about some you know, opinion that may be relevant or not irrelevant. So I protect them from that. I always have a long conversation each day with the studio, let them know what we're doing and thinking about. I'll have the discussion with them. And if I think it's something relevant, then maybe at lunch or at dinner, I'll, have, I'll mention something to the director when it's easy for him or her to hear it and not be deterred by it or confused by it. One of the first things I do every morning is I sit in the hair and makeup trailer. Mm -hmm. And um, right after the actors have gone to the set, because I have been on the set already with the director and the cinematographer as they're lighting it and chatting about that. And then the, when they bring the actors on, I just sort of, while the director is getting a take or two, go into the makeup and hair trailer to find out if there are any issues that day that I should be aware of that could help us if we were forewarned. And then I'm back before we start shooting. They've done rehearsals and blocking, and then we start to shoot. And I have some things in my head that might help the director later. 
So speak about some of the directors that you've collaborated with um, and what you appreciate about their vision, their style, and their approach to storytelling. Well, I'd have to start first with Abnet, even though he wasn't the first director. He and I produced and he directed four films together. And um, what I've always appreciated about him is his huge amount of preparation. And that kind of ruined it for me with everybody else. And then I would get everybody to do the same amount of prep um, where they may not have wanted to do it, but John would always have worked out his shot list. And these were the days before we did animatics um, and, and storyboards so much. Mm -hmm. Today, it, as we get further in this discussion, you know, animatics and storyboards become everything in terms of prep. But John would just be, he, you know, he knew that he wrote and knew the script in and out. Mm -hmm. And he always was truthful at the emotional core. And he had a good sense of humor and he could find that with the actors. And that was always very important to me. So that was, as a first director, really a formative experience for me and a great joy. I, I would go to probably, and I'll do a short piece on a few of them, uh, Merrick Kanievska, who directed Another Country. And then for us, he directed Lesson Zero. Merrick was a brilliant um, visualist and um, brought so much beauty and um, ultimately truth, but a tremendous amount of beauty in the storytelling of Lesson Zero, which is a very hard subject matter. So he made it something that sort of lured you into the narrative. And that taught me a lot about the importance of the visual component to telling a story that I had clearly in my head and being more indirect and more beautiful maybe then being more direct was a, something that really typified Merrick's great strengths. Steve Herrick, I worked with on Mighty Ducks in the first one and on, on Three Musketeers. And he was an editor before he was a director. And that taught me a lot. And I, I will, will later have worked with Raja Guznell. And Raja was an editor before he was a, a director. So I learned a lot about how a director who certainly has been an editor first or just a great director will think about how they want to edit the scene while and before they're shooting it. So it doesn't always come out in the storyboards, but it does come out in an animatic. And that has been an incredible aid as I've moved through filmmaking over the years where these things develop. So that was a, a great experience with Steve, Sam Weissman, who directed the second Mighty Ducks, and he directed George of the Jungle. Mm -hmm. Sam directed a lot of television, and he was an actor before. Sam was a person who could immediately get to what was funny and immediately find the truth in the scene as an actor and then as someone who spoke to the actors. And let me really take one more, who I, I have a tremendously close relationship to. We haven't made another film together, but we've tried developing a number of things, and we're in the middle of one big thing right now, yeah. And that is Luis Mendoki, um, oh. who is from Mexico City. And Luis did something no one I've ever seen has done. Mm -hmm. And I bring it up now to directors who either think, oh, that's a great idea, let's try it, or think, okay, that's good. I'm glad you had that experience. And that is Luis would work with the actors as he rehearsed with them for the, the two or three weeks. He would have them keep dream logs. And oh, in those dream logs, he would have them think about the movie, think about its thematic elements, think about their characters. And then other truths would come out when he was having discussions about their dream logs. And I got to sit in on a few of those. He liked to keep it between him and the actor, and I understood that completely. But then he finally said to me, come on in and sit and we'll chat with, you know, about these. And I learned a lot from that. And that's really helped us in developing ideas together that we trust each other in sort of deeper thoughts that we have to tease out of one another. And we should say, I, that film you're speaking of, um, I know you're developing something now, but when a man loves a woman, and I can imagine, I mean, that of course is challenging subject matter and so much subtext, so, much, so charged. Maybe you could describe it for those who haven't seen the film. Well, it's a premise that has a father, two daughters, and a mother who's an alcoholic, who could be dangerous to herself and possibly dangerous to her children. Mm. And um, it's a fight between the father and the mother. 
um, about that. It was written by Ron Bass, who's you know an amazing writer, and and Al Franken, who you may know from Saturday Night Live or was a United States senator, but he's always been a comedic actor and writer. So the tragic comedy that was in it, a lot of that was was Al, and then the drama and the emotion and general humor, a lot of that was Ron. And then Luis teased these real moments of struggle within this family out from these two actors. And I believe to this day, when Meg wasn't nominated for an Academy Award, that I didn't think she should not be nominated. I thought there was no one else who should have won it that year. I thought she deserved to win the Academy Award more than anyone in recent history. And I was horrified. I wrote her a seven-page single-space letter about the nuances of her performance and about the love that she put into it and about the commitment she had to this character and to her girls, the two actresses, Mae Whitman and Tina Majorino, who she gave so much to and they gave so much to her. To watch Tina, who was eight or nine at that point, but really to watch Mae, who was about three at that time, a toddler her memorization and her understanding of ideas was so profound. Those scenes, every time I see that movie, and I, you know, I don't see it in my movies very often after we're done with them, but I've seen this two or three times with different people and with my daughters, and I cry every time. And it doesn't end as a big happy family coming together. It ends with a dollop of hope that maybe with a lot of work, this could be put back together. But it's not put back together on screen. And we felt that it was really important to leave the work of that family up to the audience who saw it. And ultimately, I'm very, you know, as with many of the films, very proud of that movie. And it was a joy to work with Luis in that and Meg. And it was you know, an important film amongst all the films. I have those that are dramas. And I have those that are family films. And some of those are dramas or comedies. But the real dramas, the, the Less Than Zeros, the Fried Green Tomatoes, the When a Man Loves a Woman, Up Close and Personal, all those movies, The War, they all meant a lot. Ellen Burstyn was remarkable. I actually worked with her a second time on, on, on um, Charlotte's Web. Andy, I always loved. And to have someone who is so full of life and such a brilliant actor, have that sensitivity, that quiet sensitivity and those outbursts that came in when he was backed up against the wall, you know, all of those things were templates for indelible characters. And so interesting to, to speak about that process of sharing like a dream log or dream journal, because sometimes I've, I, and I used to ask this question more, but I, I realize that some people aren't comfortable sharing their dreams, but I think how useful it is with the drama where there's so much subterranean, well, in any film anyway, there's so much that's not said, right? The greater part of the script is what's in the script, but is not said in language, right? <laughs> and um, is alluded to. So I think it's really smart, but I used to ask people what their dreams were like, because sometimes writers will tell you that they got this whole story from a dream. But then I learned some people <laughs> that you were trying to psychoanalyze them. <laughs> so I, I, did, I don't mind. I'll, I'll share my dreams. Do you have things where you've made a decision based, like it came to you, like, oh, that's, that's the way we have to go. I mean, intuition must play a huge part being a producer. Dreams, intuition, mm -hmm. all those things form the basis of the nuance and the discussions on set between the director and I every day. You know, the moment I'm into a movie, I dream about it every night. And a lot of things I don't say <laughs> to the director, but those things that I think are relevant and useful maybe to him or her in that moment is something that I share uh, with relish and would love, you know, especially on the weekends where we have some time to just dream together about the coming week. I find that to be greatly useful. So I try not to censor those things unless they're just, you know, not relevant to the week ahead. 
And like some, like some people have told me, like Hilary Mantel told me, like she knows when a book is going well because her dreams are just vivid. So like, you know, dreaming life might be different, like when a film is going well, as <laughs> when there's a cop. I don't know what it is. Or if, it, if it's a, a slog, yeah. then I fall asleep the moment I, my head hits the pillow and I remember nothing, so. <laughs> she can't do it, she will just completely escape. And some, someone else told me that like like the role of producer it's managing power like you said film company or whatever making sure everyone feels they have a, a role conflict management maybe is is a good thing to have <laughs> speak of these other different things that you that you've how do you say refined over the years yes you know it's uh i often said in speaking about it to schools at times it's the only medium I know where the signature of every artist is on the product, in the end credits, in the beginning credits. Every single person who's worked on the film, I like to make sure is in the credits. Mm -hmm. And having said that, when I'm on the set all day or whether I'm with the art department or whether I'm working with the composer or I'm working with the visual effects, mm -hmm. every I always fly, in this case, uh, on, on Clifford, we're working with MPC in Montreal and in London. And one of the first things I like to do uh, is to have the director and I fly there. And we can't do it now, but putting our arms around each one of the animators, you know, and thanking them and knowing that they're gonna be working in dark cubicles for the next year on this and to remember the heart of the movie and the laughter of the movie and the tears of the movie that we need them as actors, as animators, because they're really actors, to be a part of that process. And that's true every day on the set. Again, whether it's hair, makeup, wardrobe, or lighting, or uh, the grip department, or whoever, the, the Teamsters. I'm always in the parking lot having a chat, giving a hug to somebody, I'm a hugger. Um, I always ask first. But still, to let people know that I you know, genuinely feel happy and privileged to have them working on this, all of us together. I think that glue nature that you were talking about and that sense of keeping people feeling both engaged, feeling that their creative voice is heard and feeling relevant is incredibly important. And a topic we haven't really talked about is the post-production. You know, the post-production in the, most of the movies that I produce is always longer than the pre-production and production combined. Because normally now, pre-production will be 12 weeks and the movie will shoot for another 12 weeks. So, you know, we're looking at six months combined and the post-production will be a year and a half, usually. So work, working on visual effects, working on music, working on um, the lighting and the DI, getting the backgrounds to be right in the days that weren't sunny, we can make things sunny in the days that needed to be overcast, we can take the shadows away and make them overcast in the ADR, in the voicing of the characters, in the emoting of the characters, if they are in a live act. I, I, I've only made, I've only produced one actually animated film, that was the third Smurfs, but I produced a lot of hybrid films. And so we have animated characters side by side with live action characters. So the post-production is just as busy every day as the production. Yeah. Um, so you're really on the film for almost two years. And so the, you, you were mentioning that, so you're involved in location scouting or in the casting process as well. That's what I think that people might not understand and I don't fully understand. You're involved in all, all aspects. Well, you know, I have that discussion before I hire a director. I have that discussion about a partnership and about mutual you know, respect and about working as hard as we possibly can to making sure that we agree on what the film should be, what the studio is expecting, what I'm expecting, and what they're expecting, to make sure that we're, we're all in alignment in that. And if I feel us getting out of a line because possibly the director spoke to somebody else or he or she were influenced in a way by the actor. And then I hear it and I think, oh, that's a fantastic exploration beyond what we were going to talk about. I'd say, great, let's try that. 
or if it's something that I think is a right turn or a left turn and really doesn't belong in the movie that we're making, then I'll say, look, if we have time during the day, let's try a few takes. If not, I'll be happy to talk to the actor or you talk to the actor to explain why we didn't do that. But yes, it is a creative process working with the director for me from the, ver from the get go, saying that we're gonna be a brother and sister, we're gonna be brothers, because I believe that on the set, the mom and dad, or dad and dad, or mom and mom, where I wouldn't be producing, if they are aligned and close, everybody's happy, right? Everybody works hard, they, they don't feel threatened. Everything is more open in that way. And so creatively, we hear more ideas, we can sift through them, we can do all those things. And if not, then maybe, which I've had happen once or twice, uh, maybe we shouldn't be making the film together. And even though we started pre-production, I'll have a discussion with the studio and we'll move on to someone different. And so you mentioned or alluded to the industry is going through a lot of changes even before the coronavirus. And now there's social distances. It's another thing about whether people are going to go in numbers to cinemas and they were already, it was already like things are migrating towards television and, and you've worked in television and film but still are quite strongly in film. So how are you adapting? What are you embracing? What do you think is exciting about this moment in time? I think that the streamers are really excited. I think they've taken the notion of HBO or the broadcast networks when they really, really cared about quality programming. Mm -hmm. And they've made them a touchstone of the streamers. Yes, they do entertaining things without importance, but a lot of them are some really important ideas and some great filmmaking. So for me, it's a very exciting thing for everybody in the process to have a whole new line of buyers. In terms of motion pictures, th there'll never be a substitute for me to going to live theater. I love to be in that room. I love to feel the actors standing up there on stage. I love to feel the audience around me reacting with me the same way with a motion picture. To the Mighty Ducks, when the director and I were on opening night, not at a premiere, but at a regular theater. I was astounded and I turned to him and I said, I don't remember us putting in cheers in this moment. And I thought there was just the score. I, I was on the, that, he chuckled and he said, look down below. And as I was looking to the first few rows, people were standing up and cheering. Well, forget it. I was in tears and they had to pull me off the floor. In Fried Green Tomatoes, there was a moment in the movie where Kathy Bakes walks into the rest home and Jessica Tandy is in bed. She has a sort of white light on her and Kathy, the character, thinks, as we, the audience, think that Jessica Tandy has passed away in that moment. And as a part of the audience, I get tears in my eyes when I'm watching that. And then sitting there with my old partner, Abnet, we would hear like, were people like getting up to leave? What was going on? And we would hear this sound and it was, it was like a, a, a not, not that, but it was the unclasping of purses. Mm -hmm. And then we would hear uh -huh. like the sound of, you know, of noise, you know, going inside the purse. And then we would hear people blow their noses. <laughs> <laughs> and then we would hear voices go, <clears throat> and those would be the men. And it wasn't people getting up to leave, it was people just being incredibly affected in the moment. You can't get that sitting there watching your television while everybody else is watching their television around the world. From a filmmaking standpoint, for me, there's nothing happier you know, than those moments. I don't care what a critic says when the audience is fully engaged in the movie. You know, it doesn't matter to me whether they've said lovely things or not lovely things, irrelevant. I'm sitting there with that audience. So I just want to thank you, uh, Jordan Kerner, for um, allowing us uh, behind the curtain of what it is to be a producer and their important contributions to the success of a film and for the heart that you put into your stories and your important contributions to cinematic storytelling, cinematic and television storytelling. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Emma Ryan. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Dolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.